Just speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. All rights reserved and affirmed. Free all minds. These are weapons of mass These descent. These are weapons of mass descent. Welcome to Uprising, a daily digest of independent news analysis, investigation, education, artistic expression, and activism. It's Friday, November 8th, 2013, and I'm your host, Sonali Kohatkar. Why is Senator Dianne Feinstein Big Brother's little sister? Walmart workers walk off their jobs once more, and an award-winning documentary called Bhopali chronicles the ongoing struggle for justice for the victims of the Bhopal disaster. This is Uprising. One of the strongest storms to ever be recorded hits the Philippines, underscoring the ever-increasing dangers of global warming. Good morning and welcome to Uprising. Joining us to dissect this and other breaking news headlines is our guest expert, Adele Stan, longtime chronicler of the right wing and senior Washington correspondent for rhrealitycheck.org. Good morning, Adele. Good morning, Sonali. Super Typhoon Halyan, or Yolanda as it's being called in the Philippines, is more than 300 miles wide. Satellite wind measurements find that it is the most powerful hurricane to ever emerge in recorded history. So far, at least four people have been killed. The superstorm hits a day after an important report called Time to Change the Game shows that world governments are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry to the t- tune of $500 billion a year. The report's author says the status quo encourages energy companies to continue burning high-carbon fossil fuels and offers no incentive to change. Now, Adele, the death toll from this superstorm could be unimaginable. How much more evidence do we need that global warming is real and terrifying? What will it take to overturn these oil subsidies? You know, it's truly mind-blowing, isn't it, Sonali, that we're still having this discussion? Um, And when you look at the amount of money the U.S. is pouring into the fossil fuel industry, I mean, by 2010 figures, that was $4.5 billion. Yet if you think about, if you even try to subsidize job development in our coal fields, you know, for alternative um, careers, I mean, you can't even get, <laughs> you can't even get a few thousand, you know, it's just really uh, the fact that climate change denial is actually being fomented, uh, you know, deliberately by big moneyed interests. I mean, we see that Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, one of the reasons he's being challenged in a primary is because he dared to say that climate change is real. I mean, when USA Today, of all um, places, is saying that global warming, you know, contributed to creating the conditions uh, or perhaps even just created the conditions for this amazing devastating storm. I mean, it's really time to wake up. The U.S. jobs report for the month of October is out today showing that although the economy added 204,000 jobs last month, the unemployment rate also grew by a tenth of a percent. The Federal Reserve uses the jobs data to determine whether to continue buying bonds to help stimulate the economy. The October numbers were expected to be skewed by the fact that hundreds of thousands of government workers were off the job temporarily during the shutdown. Adele, how do you interpret this month's report? Good news or bad news for 
ordinary people. You know, I don't know if I'm smart enough to interpret this report because it has so many conflicting kind of data points. So it's really, what I thought was really interesting was in the reporting on the good jobs reports, the markets were worried about um, the Federal Reserve then backing off of its stimulus spending plan where it buys a lot of U.S. Treasury bonds. So, and yet with the with the unemployment number, you know, creeping up, that does not reflect the federal employees furloughed. They were counted as employed. So uh, it's a minor creep up. Uh, at the same time, we have more jobs being apparently being uh, created or hired for. I'd love to know what those jobs are. Uh, honestly, Sonali, we still have a difficult economy. That's about them as much as I know. Right. Uh, the report does show apparently that uh, although some uh, tens of thousands of jobs were added in higher paying sectors, many more jobs were added in low wage sectors. And in fact, we'll be covering uh, some of the people in jobs like that later in the show with another Walmart walkout that's happening. Oh, terrific. So finally, let's take a look at what's happening in Capitol Hill. The U.S. Senate passed the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, or ENDA, right. to uh, outlaw workplace discrimination against LGBT people, the bill that has languished for years may still be thwarted despite a sea change in public perceptions and judicial decisions simply because the Republican-dominated House will likely vote it down to appease their base. Adele, where do you think this bill will, will head? Do you think we'll have to wait for the GOP to lose the House in next year's midterm elections before seeing any progress on it? That may very well be the case, Nelly. I mean, this bill may not even get to the floor in the House of Representatives um, because John Boehner is so spooked by his Tea Party caucus, which is a minority faction of the majority. Uh, so, and it's going to be very hard for the Democrats to win back the House uh, because of the way uh, you know redistricting took place um, uh, in 2010. So. Right. Um, so it is a long slog, but we have to say this for the advocates for this, uh, this, this legislation. They've been on it for 20 years. It took them 20 years to get this through the Senate. They are not going anywhere. Uh, and just as a side note, though, it is, um, there is a still consternation over the um, religious exemptions that were attached to this bill in mm-hmm. the Senate in order to get it to pass. Right, right. That's a good point. Well, Adele, as always, thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks again for having me, Sonali. Adele Stan is our Friday morning daily news flash guest expert. She's a longtime chronicler of the right wing and senior Washington correspondent for rhrealitycheck.org. This is Uprising. After we come back, Norman Solomon joins us. He'll tell us why he's calling Senator Dianne Feinstein Big Brother's Little Sister. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Uprising. I'm your host, Sonali Kohatkar. As new revelations of government overreach continue to emerge from the trove of NSA documents leaked by Edward Snowden, it is difficult to anticipate what new previously sanctified protections we took for granted have been violated. This week, we learned that it's not just the NSA, but even the CIA and the private telecommunications company AT&T are involved. Government officials have told the New York Times that the CIA 
pays $10 million of our tax dollars a year to AT&T in exchange for information on its U.S. customer base. Meanwhile, many of our elected representatives seem not too concerned about the violations of our rights. In fact, California Senator Dianne Feinstein has gone as far as to defend the government's spying activities, citing the 9-11 terror attacks as justification. Now, activist and writer Norman Solomon has had enough. Calling Feinstein Big Brother's loyal sister, he accuses her of, quote, methodically stabbing civil liberties in the back. Norman Solomon is a co-founder of RootsAction.org, founding director of the Institute for Public Accuracy, a longtime activist and author of several books, including War Made Easy, How Pundits and Pre- Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death. Welcome to Uprising, Norman. Hi, thanks, Sonali. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, let's uh, first, before we get to why Diane Feinstein is Big Brother's loyal sister, um, let's take a look at this latest revelation. AT&T, which, like many telecommunications companies and other private companies, has maintained uh, they do not give over information, private information to the government, it's now been revealed, is not just giving information, it's selling information, and not to the NSA, but to the CIA. Yes, this uh, story that broke in the New York Times underscores the fact that while there's been a lot of necessary focus and revelations about the National Security Agency, the NSA is not the only uh, U.S. government agency that's engaged in uh, Big Brother activities. And uh, in point of fact, despite the requirement that the CIA not uh, spy on uh, Americans in the United States, uh, they're end running around that, and they're throwing a lot of cash at AT&T in the process. So let's talk about uh, what exactly this means, because AT&T now has a financial incentive. Uh, where they're taking taxpayers' dollars to give away taxpayers' information. Yes, the money augments the other ways that uh, AT&T and other carriers like Verizon have an incentive to uh, uh, play play ball in the in the majors of surveillance with the government. I mean, after all, you think about how the executive branch and uh, the legislative, for that matter, in Washington uh, make decisions every year that have tremendous profit and loss implications uh, in terms of monopoly and antitrust or lack uh, thereof in terms of action. And so it's part of a whole fabric where often uh, the Silicon Valley and the telecom companies pose as though they're the innocent victims or even the opponents of NSA Big Brother-type spying. And for financial reasons like the pollution of the cloud, the fact that around the world now many individuals and other companies view the U.S.-based cloud with suspicion, uh, there's also just the fact uh, that there's tremendous incentive uh, for these companies to uh, be part of the surveillance apparatus. In other words, they each have something the other can offer. The government offers tremendous favors and rulings and inaction that will help the profits of these Silicon Valley and other companies. And those companies are at the cutting edge of digital surveillance capacity that the U.S. government is so eager to tap into one way or another. 
So let's talk about Senator Dianne Feinstein, because really the only thing that could uh, curb uh, at this point short of mass public pressure, which is, of course, building, but but we also rely on, one would expect, our own elected representatives to say, uh, no, this is not acceptable. Yet uh, one of our own senators here in California, which is supposed to be, she's supposed to be part of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, uh, Dianne Feinstein, has very much supported the spying activities of the government. Tell us about what she has actually come out and said. She's written op-eds about this. She's not just a quiet supporter. She's an overt and vehement supporter. And a very powerful one. Dianne Feinstein is chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee from the first day that what we know uh, subsequently were the revelations courtesy of Edward Snowden. Dianne Feinstein has been front and center publicly and privately defending the NSA's surveillance. She has, from the beginning, claimed that so-called metadata is no problem at all. Uh, if, it, if that were the case, uh, then Dianne Feinstein would post on her own website metadata, for instance, who she has called, who calls her, how long the duration of the call is, what time of day or night, uh, the location of the calls uh, in terms of what near cell phone tower was used, and so on and so forth. Uh, Five-year storage of that information. She's been uh, trying to uh, turn that uh, debacle of public relations for the NSA into supposedly something very benign. And not only as a huge propagandist, uh, as chair of that key intelligence committee, but Dianne Feinstein is now promoting with a vengeance a phony so-called reform bill in the Senate. She's pushed it through the Senate Intelligence Committee. She calls it the FISA Improvements Act. Right. But really what it does is it makes permanent, it codifies uh, NSA collections of U.S. Uh, phone records, uh, many of the terrible practices the NSA has done, which are at least implicitly illegal. Her legislation would legalize, normalize, wink at, and otherwise uh, make a permanent part of uh, NSA surveillance of the United States and the world, frankly. And one other key aspect is uh, it would, her legislation, the Feinstein bill, would allow and encourage uh, and codify the NSA's capacity to attack encryption systems so that those trying to protect themselves from the NSA big brother ears and eyes uh, would find themselves technically undermined by the policy of the NSA to destroy the effectiveness of encryption. Also, it would help, her bill would help uh, the NSA hack into the Google and Yahoo data centers around the world, internet surveillance in general. So what you're saying is that right now, a lot of what the NSA has been doing has been sort of legally questionable. They've been using very broad powers that they're trying to define under the current uh, FISA amendment. But what she is uh, doing in her bill would actually grant those powers as clearly and openly or as uh, strongly as possible, codifying them, as you said, into law so that there would be no question or no doubt about whether what the NSA was doing is legal. Yes. the term in my article headline uh, was not hyperbolic, really. Uh, Big Brother's loyal sister does describe Feinstein, and in a way, uh, she is the most powerful person in Washington uh, on Capitol Hill to run in interference for and actually deepen the surveillance power of the NSA. 
And it's important for us to uh, denounce uh, Feinstein's bill, and I was pleased to read the Los Angeles Times editorial on Tuesday, uh, which uh, in a restrained way really denounced the Feinstein bill, really called out Dianne Feinstein. And you know, keep in mind, this is not exactly a uh, blazing progressive outlet, but the LA Times editorializing saying that the Feinstein bill is no good and pointing out that there is an alternative. Uh, Senator Leahy in the Senate and Congressman uh, Sensenbrenner in the House uh, have put forward a bill, now has more than 100 co-sponsors, which is the opposite of Feinstein's bill. It actually insists that the Fourth Amendment uh, be respected. It insists that the investigations uh, done by the NSA will only be because of probable cause. What a concept, the Fourth Amendment actually being adhered to instead of uh, being violated. And so I think for those of us who live here in California, we have a special responsibility to call and to write Feinstein, but perhaps most importantly to denounce her in every venue we can, including in the Democratic Party. Hmm. We've got people up and down uh, the state of California who are elected officials in Congress and elsewhere who are kissing the feet of Dianne Feinstein, I assume figuratively only, <laughs> uh, and they are refusing, while they speak out for civil liberties, they're refusing to cross Senator Feinstein, who is the biggest enemy of civil liberties in the U.S. Congress. Well, Norman, I want to thank you so much for uh, laying out in clearest terms what Feinstein is up to, lest any Californian be fooled by the title of her act. And we had earlier in our program had uh, Shahid Buttar on earlier in this week, who recommended the USA Freedom Act as a much, much better alternative on uh, curbing the NSA's power. Very briefly, is that something that you would recommend people back instead? Yes, very much. The uh, USA Freedom Act, that's uh, the name for the Leahy Sensenbrenner bill, and it's something we can fight for, and uh, we have a chance to win. Mm-hmm. Well, Norman, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We'll post your article, uh, Big Brother's Loyal Sister, How Diane Feinstein is Betraying Civil Liberties, on our website, uprisingradio.org, later today. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Sonali. Norman Solomon is co-founder of RootsAction.org, founding director of the Institute for Public Accuracy, longtime activist and author of several books, including War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death. This is Uprising. When we come back, we'll take a look at a walkout, yet another walkout, out by Walmart workers. Stay tuned. This Saturday, November 9th, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., Hip Hop for Humanity will kick off its third annual canned food drive at the Originators Storefront on Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles. The goal for the day is to generate 5,000 pounds of food for LA's Union Rescue Mission. Bring one frozen turkey or five cans of food and receive a hip-hop music goodie bag, which will include some of this year's heavy-hitting music donors, such as Sick Jackin of Psycho Realm, Quinto Soul, Crazy Race, DJ Lord Ron of KPFK's Breakbeats and Rhymes, Percy P., and many more. That's the third annual Hip-Hop for Humanity canned food drive this Saturday, November 9th, at The Originators on Melrose Avenue. For more info and to get involved, call 714-399-8353, that's 714-399-8353, or check out the featured event section at kpfk.org. KPFK is a proud media sponsor. 
I'm Cornell West, and you're listening to Uprising with Sister Sonali Kolhatkar on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles and 98.7 FM Santa Barbara. Imagine two people working for the same company, doing the same job, but one of them gets paid much less and has fewer benefits. Would you think that was fair? Well, unfortunately, this is a situation for American employees of the world's largest company, Walmart. While Walmart workers, or associates as they're called, in Europe, Brazil, Argentina, and even China are allowed to unionize and hence at least potentially have better wages and benefits, Walmart's U.S. employees are forbidden from joining a union. To help remedy this, Walmart workers have been organizing sporadic one-day strikes across the nation and even here in Southern California over many, many months. Just last night, police arrested 54 people at a walkout at the Walmart in L.A.'s Chinatown. The day before, workers at a Walmart store in Paramount walked off the job, demanding better working conditions and pay. The labor organizing group Our Walmart has been helping coordinate the walkout efforts, which they're hoping will result in Walmart offering a minimum wage of at least $25,000 a year for their full-time employees. Workers are building momentum for their next big walkout action on Black Friday, which is the nation's biggest shopping day, the Friday after Thanksgiving. Last year's Black Friday saw 400 Walmart associates walk off the job. My guest is Josh Idelson, staff reporter at Salon.com, who's been covering the Walmart walkouts. Welcome to Uprising, Josh. Thank you for having me, Sonelli. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, first lay out in broad terms how the Walmart campaign for better wages is going. Now the actions have entered their second year, uh, and there have been these sporadic walkouts. There's been uh, some media coverage, but are workers making real progress in breaking through the ceiling, if you will, in, in Walmart? So. For the first five decades of Walmart's existence, there were no coordinated strikes in the United States. Then last year, as we saw a cresting wave of walkouts in the Walmart supply chain, including walkouts by guest workers at a Walmart supplier, by workers at warehouses in Illinois and in California, we saw the first ever coordinated Walmart store walkouts about this time last year. Since then, there's been a series of strikes, many of them one-day strikes. The past two days, we saw a two-day strike. Over the summer, there was a strike of about 10 days in which workers took a caravan to protests I covered for the nation at Walmart shareholder meeting. So we're seeing something that has not happened before in the company's five-decade history in the United States. And it's something where organizers have been able to point to some changes on Walmart's part, including adjustments made in individual stores and announcements that the company has made on scheduling, for example, one of the signal issues that the workers have been calling attention to. Now, was that specifically in Florida that you're just referring to? Well, on the national level, Mm -hmm. the company had a address that Bill Simon, the U.S. CEO, gave uh, last January, announced changes to scheduling that the company argued would make it easier for workers to find full-time work if they wanted it. They announced recently that they would be moving positions to full-time positions. So, of course, Walmart never suggests that its actions are in response to these protests. Instead, they dismiss 
the protests as a fringe, the workers involved as unrepresentative, the organization as a greedy union front group that's just trying to get people's dues. But these are national changes that go along with local changes, like the ones I reported for Salon at the Hialeah, Florida store, where workers say, in fact, that they were paid for the day that they were on strike and Mm. also got 40-hour schedules. So there are cases where you can point to real progress towards these workers' goals. That said, we're still talking about a tiny minority of Walmart's 1.3 million member direct U.S. employee workforce up against a company that is famously and ferociously anti-union and anti-organizing of any kind by workers that's oppositional towards the company. Now, the uh, Florida uh, victory that you mentioned, where workers got full-time schedules, is Walmart just responding to local actions? It doesn't have nationwide policies that it uniformly implements? So Walmart has not responded to my inquiry regarding what went on in Hialeah. This is a case where workers went on strike for a day in an action that was embraced by our Walmart, the union-backed group behind mm-hmm. these other protests, but that organizers say w- was not instigated by that group. I see. So workers Walmart, themselves in Florida uh, in that one particular store took it on. Uh, I talked to someone there who said, uh, a worker who said, this is something I wanted to do for a long time, and I knew that I had to be able to get enough people together to do it together. And then we decided that that the moment had arrived when we could. Walmart, it's fair to say, has about as much control over what happens in individual stores as it wants to in most Hmm. cases, from the music that plays to the temperature in the stores to the prices. Walmart also has famously dramatic control over the actions of its suppliers, again, to the extent that it wants to, which doesn't stop the company from turning around and arguing that abuses or alleged abuses that took place in its supply chain were out of its control. The journalist uh, Charles Fishman has a story in his book, The Walmart Effect, about the pressure that Walmart put on Vlasic to have an outrageously cheap, outrageously large jar of pickles available at Walmart that arguably was terrible for Vlasic, but worked well for Walmart because it symbolically represented this this cheap bounty you can get at Walmart, even though (laughs) no one could even finish the pickles before they went bad. And so the, the question of concessions that are made in individual stores, certainly Walmart may be able to distance itself, but it is hard for me to imagine that if Walmart directed that certain things not happen in individual stores, they would happen anyway. Again, Walmart exercises tremendous control. And we saw, for example, with mandatory anti-union captive audience meetings, a script, a literal script that workers reported to me, their managers read from in the lead up to last Black Friday. In some cases, the workers said it seemed like the managers didn't really want to be there or know exactly what to make of what they were saying. But In the end, home office, as it's called in Arkansas, is more often than not in control when it wants to be.
So, Josh, uh, let's talk about Black Friday. Last year uh, was the first time that Walmart workers uh, coordinated these Black Friday actions around the country. This was on the biggest shopping day of the year and really uh, quite a, a courageous thing for Walmart workers to do because that's directly affecting the company's bottom line. Retailers wait the entire year for Black Friday to help uh, make up any losses on their books. Um, and this Black Friday, which is coming up, uh, tell us what's planned planned? Will we see an upping of the ante? I also understand that there's a a new website called associatevoices.org where Walmart workers can anonymously sort of request uh, help in organizing actions at their stores. So the campaign in interviews has has stopped short of declaring that this will be larger than last year, but Dan Schlotteman, a key strategist in this campaign and official at the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, did pledge to me earlier this year that by the end of 2013, our Walmart would make it clear that it was getting bigger. And this is an effort which, at its peak in terms of turnout, has mobilized 400-some workers on one day to go on strike. Now, again, that's out of 1.3 million U.S. Walmart employees. But the context here is that this is an example of a trend that we're seeing much more of, including in the fast food strikes that have gotten some attention, where you have these minority strikes, these short-term strikes, where you have a minority of the workforce who hopes that their courage will breed courage from their coworkers, that their action, that they're withholding their labor for that day, while it generally won't shut down the work site, will embarrass the company and engage the public, and most of all, engage more of their coworkers to get involved. The question is, can our Walmart move dramatically past that high watermark of 400-some people? I talked to the president of the UFCW, the union that's closely tied, very closely tied to our Walmart, and he said that he didn't think it was realistic to expect they would get 500,000 people out, but that they were calling attention to, to abuses at Walmart. And certainly Walmart is under more scrutiny than it's been in the past, and what you can call corporate campaign tactics, the the websites and the reports and the media and getting politicians to blast the company make some impact. But we did see in the 2000s when major unions invested a lot in going up against Walmart in an air war that the air war alone is not enough. And what has been so significant about this campaign is it's combined those kinds of air war tactics with industrial activism by workers, with Mm -hmm. developing real leadership among workers who are ready to pull their coworkers out on strike. So the question is, can they get dramatically more people to join in this Black Friday than the number we saw last year, despite the fact that the alleged retaliation by Walmart has gotten much more extreme over the past year. Right. And I want to mention that LA's Walmart workers, many of them are going out on strike um, this week uh, and have gone out on strike this week. So uh, one of the main requests, one of the main demands is a salary. And I mean, it's just tragic to say it. Walmart workers want to earn at least $25,000 a year. In, an, in a city like LA, That's that's nothing. That's really low. It's barely enough to live on. $25,000 a year. Um, The CEO of Walmart has said that over 475,000 Walmart employees do make at least that. But as you've pointed out, Walmart has 1.3 million employees. Meanwhile, CEO Mike Duke's salary last year was over $18 million. So my question is, Josh, um, what do you make of these minimum wage laws, uh, living wage laws that some states are trying to pass? D.C. unsuccessfully tried 
tried to get Walmart to pay its workers more, but uh, because the mayor vetoed it in a very bizarre move. But then in New Jersey, there was a ballot measure that voters recently approved to raise the minimum wage. And of course, here in California, that's happening as well. Not maybe by enough, but is that one tactic uh, to, to try to force companies like Walmart, not just Walmart, to increase salaries? It is. It is a tactic that we've seen labor uh, organized and otherwise take up. And part of the pattern here is that American labor law is, if you believe the goal of American labor law is to vindicate the right of a majority of workers if they want it to bargain collectively, then American labor law is broken. And as increasing number of workers either are literally excluded from the protections in the law or have just found them to be largely empty promises, you see workers and unions and labor groups taking up a range of tactics, including trying to use the state, trying to use legislation and regulation, either to directly force working conditions up or to strengthen their leverage, strengthen their ability to come to the table with a company and extract some kind of concession through the threat of regulation. And Walmart has a long history here, as in Maryland, for example, legislators pushed requiring companies like Walmart to pay for the cost of their workers not having health insurance. That was thrown out in court. We saw the D.C. living wage bill, which many people on both sides referred to as a Walmart bill and got vetoed by the mayor. In California, there was an effort by some Democrats unsuccessfully to pass a law that would have disincentivized Walmart from keeping people's hours down to avoid Affordable Care Act requirements. The the challenge here, though, is that Walmart, with Walmart's economic power, comes a tremendous amount of political power. And that's why part of what's interesting this week is that workers more explicitly for the first time are calling on President Obama to meet with them. And this is an administration that wall the Democratic administration tapped the former head of Walmart's foundation as the head of the Office of Management and Budget, keeps holding events with Walmart and praising Walmart's efforts on issues from providing healthy food to hiring veterans. And so if this becomes a deeper divide within the Democratic Party, that will also be something to watch as we approach Hmm. Black Friday. Finally, are Walmart employees here in the U.S., do you think, aware of the fact that their fellow workers in Europe and other countries can join unions? And does that inspire their outrage, their desire to walk out of the job? You know, the the international comparison is an interesting one. And uh, reading Nelson Lichtenstein's book, one, one of the striking things, one of the striking patterns that emerges is that in many cases, it's, it's not that Walmart has wholeheartedly embraced unionization elsewhere. In many cases, either they've inherited unions when they bought existing chains in other countries, or they've found that they can work with unions that are not independent worker organizations, but that instead are, in some sense, part of a political system where workers are not where strikes are not sanctioned by unions, for example, where workers do not have the opportunity to take confrontational action through the apparatus of that union. But certainly the support from workers, union and otherwise, outside of the country is something that, at least for the workers in the U.S. who've gotten to meet those workers, has provided some inspiration and has provided some support. And when I was in Arkansas covering the protests of those workers in the U.S., they were accompanied by workers from other countries who had a lot to say and who made clear they weren't just 
doing this out of an act of charity, but that they saw Walmart's low labor standards in the United States as a threat to the labor standards they had established in other countries. Well, Josh, I want to thank you so much for joining us, and we'll post uh, your work on our website at uprisingradio.org later today. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Josh Idelson is a staff reporter for Salon.com, and we've been talking about uh, ongoing Walmart walkouts. There were some this week here in Southern California, and there will be more on Black Friday. If you are an associate of Walmart or would like to help uh, the efforts at unionization, check out associatevoices.org. To find out more about the Black Friday protests, there's a website called blackfridayprotests.org, and then our Walmart, which is the union-backed organization, organization that is helping coordinate Walmart actions is on the web at forrespect.org, F-O-R-respect.org. This is Uprising. When we come back, we'll take a look at a documentary that chronicles the ongoing struggle for justice of the survivors of the Union Carbide factory accident in Bhopal, India, the worst industrial accident in history. Stay tuned. I'm Jonathan Kim, and this is Rethink Reviews, where we take a deeper look at current and past films and how they relate to the world today. Days ago, I was with my family in my home. Now you tell me all is lost. Tell no one who I am. That's the way to survive. Sometimes I wonder what it's like for a German citizen to watch a Holocaust movie like Schindler's List. While most Germans living today weren't Nazis or were even alive during World War II, it still must be weird knowing that a previous generation of your countrymen committed such horrific acts in just the recent past. But after watching 12 Years a Slave, based on the true story of a free black man in 1841 who was kidnapped, brought to the South, and made a slave, I imagine Germans feel about the Holocaust like a lot of Americans do, or at least should, feel about slavery and the role racism has played in this country's history. And films like 12 Years a Slave, while often hard to watch, may be a part of finally coming to grips with it. Chiwetel Ejiofor plays Solomon Northup, a well-regarded fiddle player who lived with his wife and children in Saratoga Springs, New York. While traveling on a freelance gig, his employers drugged and kidnapped him and sold him to a slave trader, who then claimed that Solomon was a runaway slave from Georgia and brought him to New Orleans, where Solomon had his name changed to Platt before being sold to the first of two owners. This begins 12 literally torturous years of hard labor, pain, humiliation, and terror, made worse by the fact that Solomon had known the virtues of freedom, painfully evoked through flashbacks of his idyllic life back in Saratoga Springs. It made me think that real horror isn't some masked serial killer like we see in scary movies, but something like what Solomon endured, where you spend years with no rights or freedoms under the constant threat of death, with all that abuse protected by the law. The film mostly plays out episodically, often in impressively long, unbroken shots, as Solomon attempts to navigate his horrifying situation, hoping to get word to friends in the North and see his family again. During his 12 years, Solomon meets all manner of white people with varying levels of awfulness, like a slave trader who sees black people as livestock, played by Paul Giamatti, a seemingly compassionate master who can't bring himself to do the right thing, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, a slave driver with an inferiority complex, played by Paul Dano, an owner named Epps, played by Michael Fassbender, whose cruelty and lust turns him into a more unstable version of Rafe Fine's character in Schindler's List, Epps' wife, played by Sarah Paulson, who takes her marital unhappiness out on her slaves, and, thankfully, a Canadian, played by Brad Pitt, who knows unequivocally that slavery is wrong and is willing to do something about it. Solomon also meets fellow slaves, like another kidnapping victim separated from her children, played by Adepero Aduye, and a heartbreaking young woman named Patsy, played by Lupita Nyong'o, caught between Epps and his wife. 
One of the film's most interesting characters is played by Alfre Woodard, as a former slave who's become her owner's wife and believes that any suffering endured by slaves is tolerable since God will eventually even the score. I appreciated the film's emphasis on the alleged piety of the slave owners and how they felt that being a righteous Christian was consistent with owning and torturing slaves. However, a problem I had with the film, in addition to its sometimes overbearing score, was how those who were the worst to their slaves were also portrayed as the worst people. Instead of showing how brutal, dehumanizing racism was simply the unquestioned norm in the South and practiced routinely by nearly everyone, not just monsters. But 12 Years a Slave is a tour de force in almost every respect, with a sure Oscar nomination for Ejiofor and maybe even ones for Fassbender, Nyong'o, and cinematographer Sean Bobbitt. But be warned, this movie, at 2 hours and 13 minutes, feels longer because it can be so difficult to watch as slaves are beaten, whipped, raped, and lynched, to the point where some may feel director Steve McQueen went too far, as many, including myself, said about Mel Gibson with The Passion of the Christ. But with America's racist, ultra-conservative movement in its death throes, I think it may be time for us to really confront America's holocaust and all its horrors in a mainstream format, just as Germany has, precisely because they're hard to watch, knowing that the reality was far worse. Because if you think you don't have the stomach or see the point of a movie like 12 Years a Slave, then maybe you aren't willing to accept the truth about the country you love so dearly. 12 Years a Slave is rated R and is in theaters now. I'm Jonathan Kim, and this is a Rethink Review for Uprising. Thanks, Jonathan. This is Uprising. I'm your host, Sonali Konghatkar. The world's worst industrial disaster in Bhopal, India, took place nearly 30 years ago when a factory operated by the American firm Union Carbide leaked lethal toxic gases, killing tens of thousands of people. But even decades later, the tragedy continues to unfold as residents are forced to drink contaminated water and second and third generations of children are born with disproportionately high rates of disabilities. Survivors of the accident received paltry amounts of compensation from Union Carbide. Today, even the Indian government claims that the case has been settled and the site has been cleaned up. Now, an award-winning documentary called Popali brings to light the ongoing struggle for justice being waged by Bhopal's residents. Filmmaker Max Carlson brings to light a story that is still very much in progress but has slipped out of the global consciousness. Prominently featured in the film is activist Sanjay Verma, who was only a few months old when the factory accident happened and lost seven members of his family. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by Sanjay and Max. They're in town for a special screening of the film happening tonight at UCLA. But first, let's hear a few moments from the documentary that features archival footage of what happened the day after the accident. 50,000 injured have been counted, but up to 200,000 may be affected in the long term. Cerebral palsy has begun to afflict survivors. The doctors hardly know how to relieve the suffering. They're not sure exactly what was in the lethal cocktail of gases. So it's difficult to prescribe effective medicine. Wood for funeral pyres is becoming scarce, so 50 bodies are being burnt at a time in mass cremations. That's a short excerpt of the documentary Bhopali, and filmmaker Max Carlson, who directed the documentary, is here with me, as is survivor activist Sanjay Varma. Good morning. Welcome to Uprising, Max. Thank you for having us. Well, I have to admit the film was very difficult for me to watch, Mm. um, primarily because of the children. Uh Um, The the documentary shows uh, what's happening today in Mm -hmm. Bhopal, not as much what happened before, although we just heard 
heard. Um, this is something that happened 30 years ago. A lot of Americans who remember the accident have probably thought, well, that's a story that's over. But the story right. still continues. Tell us about the daily uh, contemporary effects of Bhopal. Yeah, uh, no, the, very, the issue very much continues. Um, so not only was the gas leaked on that night and it killed immediately around 10,000 people, after that, it, it had actually affected upwards of like 200,000 people chronically with conditions, that, and they've passed those conditions on to their children genetically. So you have um, children being born with uh, varying degrees of genetic defects, um, and aside from that gas, the company was also dumping uh, tons and tons of liquid waste into a basically a, a big um, pond protected with uh plastic plastic ripped through uh, all just this a sheet of plastic sheet of plastic i actually show it and we went there together sanjay and i we went to the site and the sheets ripped totally all of t- like 300 metric tons or so of waste have seeped into the groundwater that's also affecting the people in the community children being born again with g- uh, genetic defects so um yeah, this this issue is, is going to be ongoing until it's cleaned up. Mm. Sanjay, can you tell our listeners a little bit of your story, which um, Max chronicles in the documentary? You were born just a few months before this happened, and um, the only survivors of your entire family are your older s- uh, sister and brother, and you survived because your sister basically took you in her arms and ran as fast as she could. Well, um, uh, since I was too young, uh, I was too young to remember anything from that night. But what I have heard from people and my sister, that uh, people were just running around. We were 10 members in the family. And after that night, we were just three survivors, I, my brother, and my sister. And later in 2006, uh, <coughs> my brother actually committed suicide since he was oh, suffering so from sorry. paranoia schizophrenia. But... Uh, um, I and my sister, we grew up in an orphanage in Bhopal. At the same time, my brother got involved with the campaign. So he wouldn't actually come stay with us in the orphanage. So he was very much active with the campaign. And then um, before he started having symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia in 2006, until then he was still like uh, traveling around and spreading the word out. And then he even testified in the U.S. in a court, you know. Mm. Tell us about the children that you work with uh, and that uh, many, uh, you know, that, that require so much care that even the government isn't really providing it. Uh, the film Chronicle shows a, a private uh, a nonprofit organization, the Chingari Trust, where some of these children receive treatment. Well, uh, the disaster actually is not like a one-time disaster because what ha- happened that night was just gas like poisonous gases leaked and people died and then the even the ones who survived they are still suffering on top of that toxic waste lying in and around the side contaminating the area of about like maybe five six kilometer radius so, so the factory was just abandoned it was never actually properly cleaned up no it has it has never been cleaned it up yet actually it still stands there the plant is still there and um, they have like taken all the toxic waste that they could take and they have actually kept it in a warehouse inside the factory which is around like two three hundred and forty six metric tons like a couple of years ago they secretly tried uh, they secretly took 40 tons of the waste and they actually buried in a landfill about 220 kilometers away from Bhopal. So when they buried uh, 40 tons of toxic waste uh, about 220 kilometers from Bhopal, 
people from that community they started having problem in their water this water started smelling bad so they actually started uh, uh, complaining too and they don't want like toxic waste to be dumped or buried there and the children actually of bopal like the people who got affected who suffered uh, who got exposed to gases that night their they themselves and their children started having problems at the same time people living in the water affected uh, area they started having their children being born with several birth deformities so children uh, chingari is the only place in bopal that actually looks after uh, uh, disabled and mentally physically retarded uh, children and government is uh, government never uh, acknowledged uh, gas affected people as water uh, sorry water affected people as gas victims and they wouldn't actually give them free treatment even the gas victims who have been getting treatment in the government gas relief hospitals the hospitals are, are just such in a bad condition doctors are corrupt they some of the departments of the doctor uh, hospital are shut and uh, emergencies it's like they have like emergency but it doesn't really work there yeah Uh, let me just tell our listeners a little bit about where they can watch the documentary. The film has actually been out for a while. It did its theater circuit, but there's a special screening tour that my guests are on right now. And as they're coming through Los Angeles, you can watch the film, Bhopali, tonight at 7 p.m. at UCLA Law School, room 1347. The film starts at 7 p.m. Doors will open at 6.30. The film is open and free to the public. So if you want to get a seat, get there early. And it's going to be followed by a question. question and answer session with my guest Sanjay Varma and the filmmaker Max Carlson. Now uh Max the uh documentary also shows this incredible early part of the uh the the scene as was unfolding when the American CEO of Union Carbide came to India and Warren Anderson and he was actually arrested when he arrived in India then he jumped bail and fled um and even though the Indian government has requested uh, him uh to be extradited to India for criminal uh charges the US government has not responded and I should mention that Union mm-hmm. Carbide has been brought up bought up by Dow Chemical right. now which is um which is responsible yeah. uh but the Indian government has also said uh well we are the sole representative of these victims we've settled for some um with mm-hmm. the with union carbide with dow chemical and that it's over now people got what a few hundred dollars and and it's moved on so not only is union carbide and dow chemical culpable but so is the indian government yeah i mean i, I would definitely say that everyone here did not um serve the victims properly um so In 1989 there was a settlement between an out of court settlement between um Indian government and Union Carbide for the sum of 470 million dollars. Just and to put drop. that into perspective, <laughs> I mean like the the BP oil spill got 42 billion. So this is 470 million for hundreds of thousands of people affected. Uh and it came to about that amounted to about $300 per victim, right? Yeah. 3 3 to $400. Um So then in 2000 some some point in 2000 uh, Dow Chemical purchased um Union Carbide and Dow Chemical's official position is we didn't own the plant then so we're not liable for any of the responses for for payment we're not liable at all for what happened at the at the disaster site um but of course they accepted all of the assets of Union Carbide along with that my position and and activist position is that they should then accept the liabilities 
Um, so Dow Chemical has actually acquired Union Carbide. Um, there were assets that they acquired here in the United States because Union Carbide had factories in the United States. They accepted those um, assets and the liabilities in the United States. When it came to accepting India's liabilities, they rejected those. So there is a double standard that that. Um, What's going on here? Hmm. Um, well, Sanjay, tell us about the ongoing efforts by activists like yourself, uh, not only survivors, but also advocates for the for survivors in India. Here in the U.S., there isn't as much um, awareness, but what would you like to tell the American people about the ongoing struggle for justice in Bhopal? Well, I believe like everybody was responsible for what actually happened in Bhopal, like Indian government and at the same time the state government and then American governments, American corporation. So it's a mistake that everybody did. Um, everybody actually contributed. Uh, I think it can be fixed. Warren Anderson should be extradited to India so that he faces justice. And uh, people of Bhopal, they should get adequate compensation. And... Um, especially the people who have been living in the affected communities. They never got compensation, and they it's really hard for them to get treatment as well. So they should, uh, there should be like a proper rehabilitation for the people who have been living in the water-affected area and their children. And the cleanup. I mean, the factory still hasn't been cleaned up. The thing is like... Uh, it would be as if the BP oil disaster, just they left the spigot running. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. No, there are so many actually um, court cases pending in Indian courts, mm. like in... Uh, district court in district court of Bhopal and then we have like uh, uh, cases pending in Supreme Court and High Court so one of the um, uh, cases uh, we have in Supreme Court it's like it's, it's a curative petition that are filed by the federal government of India and they have asked Dow Chemicals to pay 1.2 billion uh, US dollars as a compensation at the same time like back in 2005 federal government of India asked Dow Chemical to deposit 10 million rupees as an advance payment for cleanup because we people want Dow Chemical to come forward and clean it up because even if our government tries to clean it up, they are going to use our money because we pay taxes. Yeah, So we want to set up a precedent that uh, polluters should pay for the cleanup. Finally, uh, Max, uh, I want to just ask you about the documentary that, that you've made. Um, of course, it's a very political documentary, but it's an incredibly human film. And some of the most touching scenes were the scenes where you filmed Sanjay with his um, foster mother oh, yeah, in the orphan yeah. orphanage that he grew up in, but also mm -hmm. just the pain of parents whose children are born disabled, mm -hmm. yeah. how they care for them. I mean, I was blown away. Tell us a little bit about the process, the choices you made to share some of the scenes in this film. Um, so when I, I went with my producer, Kurt Perlion, and we met Sanjay first, and he showed us around like pretty much everywhere because um, he knew knew he knew the Chingari Trust, he knew everyone there. So uh, we knew we wanted to focus a lot on on the current situation, which means focusing on the children affected. So um, we we visited the Chingari Trust, and we spent a lot of time with them before we started filming, and we we um, kind of narrowed in on who we kind of connected with or who was open to being filming, because not everyone's comfortable with with the camera uh, right. next to them, and. Uh, uh, I remember Mita and Sadesh. Uh, Mita is a, a, a mother who was affected by the gas. Um, she had a child named Sadesh who suffers from, uh, I think he has uh, mental difficulties. Um, he um, malformed limbs, I, I believe. I think even cerebral palsy. Um, and to me, that was the most um, sad because she has a lot of hope 
but um, you know, it, it's it's for the rest of her life and her sons, it's going to be no amount of money can difficult. compensate yeah. for that. No, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, it, it is tough to to be around that, but at the same time. There's so much hope and love uh, at um, a place like Chingari Trust where they get a lot of support. Everyone's trying to help each other that um, it is inspiring at the same time. Well, Max Carlson, Sanjay Varma, I want to thank the two of you so much for joining us today. Is there a website for the documentary? Yeah, BhopaliTheMovie.com. That's B-H-O-P-A-L-I, TheMovie.com. And again, the film is showing tonight at UCLA Law School, room 1347. It starts at 7 p.m. Doors open at 6.30 p.m., my guests, uh, the survivor activist Sanjay Varma, director of the film Max Carlson, as well as the producer Kirk Palayan, will be at the event for a Q&A following. Thank you both so much. Best of luck to Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us here. For Sonali's subversive thought for the day, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. You've been listening to Uprising. Bipasha Shom is our assistant producer. Special thanks to Bradford Betts for sitting in for her. Teddy Robinson is our engineer. Our website is uprisingradio.org, where you can listen to the show and share it on your social networks, post comments, and find links and events we mention on the air. Like us at facebook.com slash uprisingradio. Follow us at twitter.com slash uprisingradio. And watch our videos at youtube.com slash uprisingradio. You can email us your story ideas at mail at uprisingradio.org. I'm your host and producer, Sonali Kohatkar. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. I'll see you Monday at 8. I did I wanna slip from bounty Did I wanna slip from bounty KPFK Powered by the people Educating the people on the illnesses in society The people, the people, the people, the people in North Hollywood, Mother Agnes Mariam de la Croix, a Carmelite nun from the Monastery of St. James the Mutilated in Syria, speaks about her work trying to stop the violence in her country and discusses the situation there as it's not being reported by mainstream media here. That's Saturday from 7 to 10 p.m. at Jesus Sacred Heart Church at 10837 Collins Street. Contact aa4syria at gmail.com for more information. In Santa Monica, the Arlington West Memorial honors the victims and survivors of war with a native ceremonial dance and a candlelight vigil. A special teen memorial will be up as well. That's Sunday at 3.30 p.m. on the beach north of the Santa Monica Pier. Call 310-339-1770. In East Hollywood, the National Museum of Animals and Society hosts a soft opening of its new facility with a debut exhibit, My Dog is My Home, The Experience of Human-Animal Homelessness. The exhibit highlights the stories of several homeless people and their animals through video, paintings, photography, audio, and other media. The event includes light refreshments, appetizers, and a presentation by Dr. Leslie Irvine, author of My Dog Always Eats First, Homeless People and Their Animals. That's Sunday evening. Visit museumofanimals.org online for more details. In Santa Monica, the Unurban Cafe hosts a media ecology soul salon, Mess, as Jerry Fialka interviews poet Wanda Coleman, who has recently published her 20th book. That's Saturday at 4 p.m. Call 310-306-7330. In Lamert Park, former drug trafficker turned executive chef Jeff Henderson, who discovered his passion for cooking while in prison, 
discusses Ann Science's new book, If You Can See It, You Can Be It, 12 Street Smart Recipes for Success. That's Monday evening at 7.